0: this morning already uh, that there's coming a close to our pilgrim days that we have here. And we don't know how many of those are left for us, but when that final day comes, it will break forth into glory, from grace to glory, from faith to sight. We're in that moment as we're gathered Together with you, we will behold the everlasting, omniscient, all powerful, holy, righteous, kind, compassionate God. Standing in the midst, at the center, is the hope of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving all deserves. And it's our prayer now, Lord. It's our prayer now. That we, would, that we would be giving you the praise and the glory that you are due in our lives now. Glorify your name, Lord, in, in the singing, the position, the posture of our heart towards you, the preaching of your word and our ability to receive it and, and understand it and apply it and, and for it to lead to, to worship of you, Lord. Lord, we pray and ask that you would be so merciful and gracious to us today that, that we might seek to honor you. Truly, that would be our greatest desire, is to honor you and glorify you with our lives. And so, if you would do that today, Lord, and through me, through any of us, we would be happy. Thank you, Lord, for today. Open up your word to us, and may we behold wonderful things in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in Romans, we'll be in chapter 5, verses 15 through 21 today, and we're going to talk about the kingdom being restored Last week we talked about how the kingdom had fallen, the kingdom had been corrupted, the kingdom held captive when Adam fell. And today we get an opportunity to have our eyes drawn specifically to the greater king. Adam contrasted with the greater king of the Lord Jesus Christ and being able to see what he has done what has been declared to be true for all of those who are in Christ, and then tie that together with what it is that we're gonna see in chapter six, seven, and eight, as we then attempt to like live this Christian life out. What he's gonna do here, what's pivotal to understand in verses, that he's doing in verses five, excuse me, chapter five, verses 12 through 21, is he's making propositional, doctrinal statements of truth regarding one's position either in Adam or in Christ. There are, no, there, are, there are no other options. You are either in Adam and under the authority of death and sin or you are in Christ and under his authority where there's righteousness and life, salvation and forgiveness. Those are the only two Options for all of mankind. And we talked last week about what the fall of Adam um, incurred for us, what it brought, how it impacted us, our involvement in the fall, our captivity to this sinful nature, um, the corruption, the depravity of our nature now because of the fall. And what we're going to see today now is the superiority of the work of Christ. Adam worked and he failed. Christ works and he succeeds and his, his work in succeeding is far superior to Adam's failure. And for all of us who are in Christ, he wants us to know that this is a, this is a declared truth. If, if Christ Jesus is the object of your faith, then these things are true for you. It doesn't matter if you feel like they're true or not. By God's perspective, according to his perspective, by his divine declaration, they're true. And he wants us to know that they are true so that then as we get into actually living out the Christian life, the way that he describes in 6 and 7 and 8 being dead to sin and alive to God, sometimes I'm like, I certainly don't feel dead to sin Sometimes I don't feel very alive to God. I'm a slave to righteousness and not to sin. Sometimes it doesn't seem like that's true for me in my life. And he goes into 7 and he talks about this struggle between I do the things I don't want to do, the things I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And then the the, the, the assured victory that we see of all the wonderful promises in Romans chapter 8, we know are ours because of this Truth that you are in Christ and what it means for Him to be your head. We talked last week about Adam and his him being a federal head, a representative of mankind. Adam is one federal head, but he's a type, as we'll see, of the one to come, pointing to Jesus Christ, who is another federal head, and He is the federal head for those who are saved. If you're a Christian. Christ is your head. And all of the blessings and everything that he earned by his work is fully accredited to you by virtue of you being in him. I talked to someone earlier this week and it was like, the person was saying, I just don't understand why is it that um, my nature is corrupted and my nature is held captive because of the sin of Adam. And the argument was, well, I wasn't there. I didn't do it. Why do I get to, to experience the repercussions of what he did? And we talked about that last week. But then I also said, well, are you a Christian? To which the person replied, yes. Did you live a perfect life? Did you die upon the cross? Are you completely righteous? Well, no. So, so all of that work that Christ did is yours, even though you weren't there and you didn't do it, and you didn't, shouldn't get any credit for it. Well, yeah. It, it's the same. It's the same idea, the same process. That's what Paul is laying out for us here. Only he's not saying that these are just theological ways to look at things. He's saying this is actually the way that life is. This is the reality. This is the spiritual reality for all mankind. And you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. And if you are in Adam, this is what is yours. Death and sin, condemnation. If you're in Christ, this is what is yours, righteousness, life, eternal life. This is what the believer stands upon and builds their life upon. You don't have faith in how you feel. You don't even have faith in your faith, how strong your faith is. You have faith in the finished and completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the period. It's the end of the sentence. And so it's, it's good for us to know this, because if you're anything like me, like, we ebb and we flow. I'm so thankful that God's saving work in my life is not dependent upon my flowing and not my ebbing, <laughs> you know? Like, it's fixed upon what Christ has done, and that brings a tremendous amount of security and rest, and that leads to worship. Worship. I can gather together with you, I can sing at home, and I can worship God in spirit and in truth, because I am positionally in Christ, and there's coming a day where I am assured to be before him, to possess him as my own, and and him to possess me, and for us to sit at the banquet table as it were, and feast together. And so the contrast is what is marked out in our passage today as Christ the greater King has come and restored what has been ruined in the fall. So Romans chapter 5, we're going to pick up in verse 15 and read through verse 21. And then again, we want to notice a few things in it that I, that I pray are honoring to the Lord and helpful for us today. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 15 through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the truth of God's word. That He would intend for us to know what it is that He has given to us. Last week, the first point that we looked at was that the King had fallen. This week our first point is that the King has come. Christ being contrasted with Adam. Being the greater king. We we see at the end of verse 14, Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Meaning there was an anti-type, or the the reality of what Adam was intended to to be a shadow of and to point towards. And the anti-type, or the reality of it, as we see in our text today, is Jesus Christ. Adam is a type. He points forward. He's, He's a type figure pointing forward to Christ. Not only is typology helpful, but it, we see that it's biblical in this text. Christ pre-exi- he, he preexists Adam. Adam was created to point forward towards the man Jesus Christ. Just as cr- the, the, the marriage institution between Adam and Eve was created to point forward towards the greater reality of the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. So Adam's a type and he's points forward towards Jesus Christ. Both Adam and Christ are covenant heads that represent their people as potential life givers. And that's what James read for us this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He read for us this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit contrasting the first Adam and Adam, the second Adam being Christ. Adam was created as a living being. Jesus Christ, he's not created. He's the giver of life. And for those of us who are in Christ, we have life, and we have it abundantly. And that's why he came, right? John 10, 10, I have come to those who might, they might have life and have it abundantly. And we're going to see that in our text, how the way that the, the, the contrast between the, the work of Adam and the work of Christ, the work of Christ exceedingly abounds over the work of Adam so that we, so that we might know what exactly it is that we have in Christ, in our, in our King that has come for us. I think a, a helpful passage to, to understand this, I talk a lot about, Um, Adam being a covenant head, Christ being a covenant head. You may hear me use terms like covenant of works, covenant of grace. Adam was created as a covenant head in the garden under a covenant of works by which he was commanded by God with clear blessings and curses based upon how he was going to respond to that moment of temptation. And it mirrors to a great degree the nation of Israel, where they're given the law and blessings and curses are given for how they respond to the law that's given to them. There are distinct differences between the two. But in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, we see as the prophet Hosea gives the indictment to the nation of Israel because of their covenant breaking, their covenant unfaithfulness, transgressing, if you will, against God. He uses Adam as the model, Hosea 6-7, but like Adam, they transgressed, they being Israel, transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Not only did Israel transgress the covenant, but we see very clearly that Adam himself was a covenant breaker as well. He transgressed the covenant. He was given a very clear warning, do not partake of this tree. If you do, you will die. He breaks, he transgressed transgresses the covenant, and he is a covenant breaker. And by virtue of being in Adam, we all likewise are covenant breakers. Isaiah chapter 24, verses 1 through 6, talks about how the whole earth is under this condemnation of sin because we have transgressed against him. Every single one of us has broken the covenant that God made with mankind. And because of that, as we saw last week, sin and death reign. We broke the covenant; sin and death reign over us. But Christ, on the other hand, is contrasted. For those of us who were in Christ, we've been brought into a a new covenant reality with Him—the covenant of grace. This is the new covenant which is prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah which Jesus speaks of and we speak of this covenant every single Sunday. Did you know that? When we partake of communion, what does Jesus say? Every passage, Matthew, Mark, Luke, 1 Corinthians. This is the covenant, my blood of the new covenant. Hebrews 13 which will be our benediction today. By the blood of the eternal covenant. We are under this covenant of grace by where we didn't work to keep it, someone worked on our behalf. And we receive the merit of his work accredited to us simply by God's sovereign will to be gracious to us and give it to us. You didn't work for your salvation. If you did, it was like he would say, Earlier in chapter 4, verse 5, and to the one who does not work, or excuse me, let's start in verse 4, Romans 4, 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, or not counted as a gift, but his due. Right, He's talking about salvation. If you worked for it, you're just getting what you worked for, what you deserve. But if you didn't work for it, So the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. See, none of us have worked for our salvation. We tried and we failed. And Christ worked on our behalf. And so we are under this new covenant relationship with him where he is our covenant head and we are recipients of his grace that he's given to us. And that grace continues to flow and abound. And he'll talk about, he'll continue the contrast throughout Romans chapter 5. He uses this word trespass seven times. And trespass can either be an unintentional sin or a willful and intentional sin and disobedience. And we're trespassers. Doesn't matter if you did it on purpose, doesn't matter if you did it on accident. This is your new corrupt nature which you're held captive to. You are a trespasser. And he uses words like trespass in verse 18, disobedience in verse 19, and we see the results of it. Verses 16 and 18 where it's labeled as condemnation. The judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. In verse 18, for therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. This is the result of that work of Adam that we are we're under in Adam. Condemnation and then death, we see in, in chapter, in, excuse me, in verse 17 and verse 21. For that because of that one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. In verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death, we see the repercussions of Adam's work which are applied to us. And we are not innocent. We are guilty parties and partakers in the matter. And so he's he's laying this out of the reign of sin and death, condemnation, guilt that is ours in Adam so that he can contrast that with the work of Christ and what it is that we have in him. Grace, the free gift, each one of those things mentioned five times, which actually have the same root word. So, so a, a total of ten times in these verses he's communicating to us the free gift and the grace that spills forward from God's gracious disposition to us so that we might know, man, who is this God? Who is this, this covenant head of ours? Well, he is one that is most gracious, merciful, and kind to his people. It's by his righteous act, we see in verse 18, by his obedience, we see in verse 19, that we have justification and life. It's by his work and his alone, you don't contribute anything you contribute zero. It's all him. Grace, unmerited, unworked for favor that we have. And it's not just God being like, like just not, it's not just us having his favor. See, he gives us A righteousness that's foreign to us that we so desperately need to be with him. And if you're in Christ, you have his righteousness given to you. You you have it now. Not infused into you like the doctrine of some, but imputed, counted to you on your behalf. Accredited to you. A righteousness foreign to you, given to you, so that you might then by that righteousness have life. You have brothers and sisters. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ. Height, depth, powers, principality. And there's nothing can separate you. You're you're you are living now. You know what I'm saying? You are alive now. You have eternal life now. It's not what you're waiting to get when you go to be with Him in the future. You have eternal life now. And that's the reason why Martin Luther would say, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You can take from me what you want, but you can never take the most valuable thing that I possess because it is mine by divine declaration. And no one can open his hand if he says that it is closed and this is mine. You and I can rest assured, as you are sitting in that chair today, that you have life in Christ if you are in Christ. And that sets you free. It sets you free to sacrificially love and serve other people, to spend your money for gospel things, to go to missions trips, to live a life where the world says, you're you're crazy, why would you live that way? And you say, oh, I'm not crazy, I'm the most sane person you know. Because I'm living for true, spiritual, eternal realities. Because what I have is most assuredly mine in Christ. you cannot take it from me. This is how the believer is called to live. Because our king has come. He has worked on our behalf. You notice the way that Adam's work is talked about as a completed action with a dead end. Adam sinned. Death and sin reigned, boom, dead end. Christ's work is described as a completed action with a way out. Life. There, there, I'm telling you, you will never be more alive than when you are living obedient to Christ. Christ. That is where life in Christ is really enjoyed and experienced. You notice in verse 17, I just want to make this observation for us. Verse 17, he's been talking about the free gift, right, in verses 15 and 16. Free gift, free gift, but by the free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is by God's grace, the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, verse 15 and 16. And then he finally gets to tell us, what, what is the free gift? Okay, I've been given this free gift. What exactly is it? And we see it in verse 17. For if because of the one man's trespass, death, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Reign in life through the one man. Jesus Christ. So you go back and you read verse 15 and 16, understanding that the free gift is righteousness. But the free gift of righteousness is not like the trespass. And it describes for us then in verse 15, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of righteousness by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. You see that the free gift of righteousness is solely expressed By God's gracious nature to us. It it, it is by His grace alone that we have Christ's righteousness given to us. By By His choice to decree that this is the way that He would work and this is what He would give to His children, this is what it is that we received. The gift of righteousness comes from God's grace, his his gracious nature. He has spoken about this already in chapter 3, verse 24, chapter 5, verse 2. And then you see actually in verse 16 how righteousness brings about, it plays a component in bringing about justification. But the free gift flowing, the free gift of righteousness Following many trespasses brought justification. See, faith and righteousness precede justification. How are you going to be justified and declared not guilty unless you are first innocent? And you cannot be declared innocent unless you have the righteousness of Christ. And on your own, you don't have that. And it is what you must have. And it's what he gives graciously to us so that we can be justified. And you see in the way that it's spoken of in verse 17. For if by one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more, right? Like much more will those who receive the abundance of of the grace and the free gift of righteousness reign and life through that one man Jesus Christ. Like as opposed to you're using words like much more and abundance to communicate a greater than something else. And so he's saying the death and the sin that we had in Adam, it, 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 as pervasive as that is, has it captivated and corrupted us absolutely, completely? Much more and abundantly more the grace of God poured out into our lives. Through the work of Christ be accounted to us. And of course, then he'll go on, which we'll look at in verse 20 here in just a moment to describe it in that way even more clearly. So the king has come. The true king has come. He's come with grace, he's come with power, he's come with um, exceedingly more to give to us than what it is that we deserve, certainly, but more than what it is that we have in Adam. We just, he is indeed a good and gracious king. But secondly, we see the kingdom purified. We saw last week how the kingdom, Adam's sin led to corruption. We see it this week lead to it being cleansed. The free gift is not like the trespass, as I said before, where Adam worked to create this new world, this new nature for mankind. He left us in an inescapable and miserable state, but the work of Christ has restored. The work that was accomplished at the fall and created a new creation within us. And he began the process of the way out. And we see that this is done in verse 18 by his work, his act in particular. Therefore, as one trespass led to to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness. Leads to justification in life for all men. He worked. Christ acted and he worked. He fulfilled the covenant of works. What Adam failed to do with all the provision in the garden, Christ did in the wilderness. He worked on our behalf. His entire life is a work so that we might be justified. Took matters into his own hands. You could say he took matters upon his own back for you and for I. And his work leads to justification so that we would know what we have in Christ and who we are in Christ. And his, this kingdom that has been corrupted has been purified by his act, and we in turn are being purified as well. I want to draw our attention to 1 Peter, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter one, verse three. Hebrews chapter one, verse three, talking about our Lord. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ provides purification. Paul will write the same thing to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, talking about the work of Christ, Titus 2:14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He has come to undo what was corrupted to cleanse us, and to purify us. And if you are in Christ, then you should be encouraged that he has, in one sense, purified you into where you are his, and in another sense, he is actually continuing to purify you. And he uses, as we saw in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, our sufferings through endurance and character and hope to purify us. The things that he is using in your life to purify you are probably the same things you're praying he would take away. He purifies us through tribulation, through hardship, through trials, so that we would learn to persevere. And persevere so that we would have godly character. And being people of character, we would be people of hope. He has come to cleanse us from the corruption of Adam. And then thirdly, he has come to set us free. The king has come. The kingdom is purified. And the kingdom is set free under Christ's rule. As opposed to being held captive under the reign of sin and death, as we saw last week, those who have the righteousness of Christ have life. No longer under the reign of sin and death, but under the reign of life. And we see this in verse 17. Verse 17 plays a real pivotal role in these verses. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. right? You get the picture of death being, reigning, having authority over all things. Much more, much more will those who receive the abundance of his grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He's come to set the kingdom free, he's come to give life to his people. And he talks about the degree of that in verses 20 and 21. The law came to increase the trespass. We've seen in Romans that the law serves several functions. And this is another one of those here. It came to increase the trespass. It came to to make it abound more. God gave the law, it it provoked man's sinful, fallen condition. When you read the sign, don't walk on the grass, what do you want to do? Walk on the grass. Right? These signs, these, these laws, these rules, they provoke the corrupt nature within us. Like I didn't even think about crossing the grass, but when I saw that sign, I was like, I'm crossing that grass just because you told me not to. Augustine talks about this in his, in his uh, testimony of his conversion, of how he was, would steal pears, not because he was hungry or he wanted them, but simply because he enjoyed the act of taking something that was not his. He didn't even eat the pear. They just threw him on the ground, him and his friends. This is the corrupt nature. This is what the law does. It provokes our sinful nature; it increases our trespass. But what does he say about Christ and the freedom that we have, the life? But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The idea here is that grace super abounds. It's those who are in Christ. Listen, I know you don't live a perfect life. I know that you, you, walking in here this morning, you have, may have, you've already trespassed. Maybe unintentionally, maybe intentionally. Your sin, the things that we do, if you were to compile them, I'm telling you, the more days the Lord gives me, the bigger the pile gets. But the big, as big as that pile gets, it can never get bigger than the grace that God gives to me and overflows for me in Christ. Now, Paul will get into, I mean, the logical question is, sweet, I'm going to live the way that I want. Because grace will always overcome. And he'll get into that next chapter, 6, verse 1. Right? God, like, he just knows us so well. He knows what we're going to think where we're gonna go logically with these things. But this is what he wants us to know right now. The work of Christ is exceedingly abounding, more powerful, and, and if you wanna think of it in terms of quantity, or quality, it doesn't matter, I don't care. The quantity of your sin, the quality of your sins. So, listen, we, we, some of us have talked, I know what you've done. Christ, the, the grace of God supersedes, it superabounds over all that it is that you've done. And people say, I can never, God can never forgive me for what I've done. You don't, you don't know my God. You don't know how gracious and kind he is. Because where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And verse 21 tells us why. Why? So that as sin reigned in death, just look at verse 21 with me real quick. You notice how small the first part of 21 is? And how long the second part of verse 21 is? As sin reigned in death, very short. He's made this transition. He's talked about the overflowing, overabounding goodness and graciousness of his nature and, and the work of Christ over, superseding the work of Adam. Sin reigned in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Like, just look at look at the sentence. Look how small he, by the time he gets to the end of it, how much, how much time he's actually talking about Adam. He's like, we've talked about him. Yeah, he, he it's it's bad, it's wicked. We've made the transition now to talk about the, the superabounding nature of gra- the grace of God working in your life so that you might know that your righteousness is not yours, it's his, it's been given to you, and it sets you free to give you eternal life, and you have it. Now you're going to struggle, chapters 6, 7, and 8, but know this to be yours, to be true, So that as sin reigned in death, why did did grace abound all the more over sin? So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign over and above, super abounding over death through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. His righteousness was not just like, his righteousness was not just enough to help you like, Squeak by, just, you know, the door was closing, right in. You know, like he's communicating to us the, the, the overabounding nature of the grace of God over our sin and wickedness. And we need to know this because Robert Murray McShane said for every one look At your sin, take 10 looks to Christ. Like we have to constantly be looking to Christ over and over again because because I live with me and I know me. I know what a bad person I am. But I need to be reminded of that as sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Not so that I can live however I want to live, so that I am free to worship him like, this makes me want to worship him. And worshiping him actually makes me what? Not want to disobey him, but to walk in obedience to him. It actually works the opposite way. It exceeds in our life so completely and so fully. I, I, I want us to just, I, I want to read real briefly, and you could turn there if you will, uh, just to be reminded of this fact, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. I think this communicates it well. You're going to find passages like this. As you think about this idea of the grace of God superabounding, you're going to see passages like this throughout the the New Testament, throughout the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Just think about the way that that's being described. With wisdom, complete wisdom and insight into your life. Not just what you've done, what you're going to do, what you're currently doing. With all wisdom and insight, he forgave us our trespasses According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. That's the position that you and I live in by his grace. We're going to prepare to partake of communion here in a moment. A couple things that I want us to think about in a practical way as I'm drawing our attention to the table. I want us to consider the great power of sin that you experience and feel in your life, and I want you to be mindful of the greater power of God at work within you. Where, great, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. He is present. He is powerful working in our lives. And we continue to rest in him, in his providence, and his timing. To work in our lives to put the things to death. You know, we are called to intentionally put sin to death. But it's in his timing, to his, de- to, 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 to his degree, of which that is actually accomplished. And that resides within his secret and sovereign Will. What we do is we apply ourselves to what it is that God has revealed to us. And he might have it planned that you're going your, to apply yourself to putting sin to death as hard as you can and just see, by his decree, small change over time. Don't be discouraged by that. Continue to pursue him and trust that his grace, abo- it, it's abound, it abounds. He is your your head. You are his. As we partake of communion, I think of this as being obviously an appropriate response of worship to what it is that we have in Christ. If you are visiting here today and you are a believer, and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, we do invite for you to partake of this communion time with us. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, then we ask for you to consider your placement in Adam. Condemnation and death is what reign and rule, but life and forgiveness and salvation is found in Christ, and he does not turn any away to those that come to him by faith, and to come to him today. So the elements are on the back tables, and they represent what it is that represent Christ and his work for us. You can get those and return back to your seat for some time of prayer, personal prayer meditation, and then we'll partake of the communion elements together shortly.